0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello everyone, welcome to New Books Network. I'm Gadim Sulongkomer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. Vipa Joshi to talk about a matter of belief, Christian conversion and healing in Northeast India. I think not only this book, but then the author and the work itself is fascinating to me because My PhD work is also on the similar same people in Nagaland, among Nagas, and I think uh, we have a lot of similarities in the sense of our topic of research and also the kind of the outworking, the theoretical and methodological outworking that has been carried out here. So I believe this conversation will be very interesting and also at the same time fruitful for for everyone, um, especially for me at the same time, since I am also... Uh, working in this um, area as an anthropologist. So before going into the discussion of the book and our work, let me straight away go to Dr. Viva Joshen to tell her something about uh, herself. Yeah, ma'am, can you please tell us something about yourself?
1: Thank you, Tia Temsu, for inviting me to talk about my book. Um, Well, about myself. Um, I'm an anthropologist. But my journey did not begin as an anthropologist. My first degree was in zoology honors from Miranda House in Delhi University. Then I moved to doing an MSc in anthropology. And there I really found archaeology and social anthropology very interesting. Not so much as biological anthropology, because i had already learned that in zoology. So it seemed like repetition. But then I became very interested and Our MSC class, um, in second year, we had a paper on fieldwork. So um, those who have done anthropology would know that it's a compulsory paper and you have to produce a dissertation and the whole class visits a particular region, a village, and does a village study and everybody takes a different topic. So we, my class of nine students um, and two teachers ended up um, doing a village study of Jyotsuma village in Nagaland. So that was my actual first time into Nagaland and to do a study. And the topic that I ended up choosing, because everyone was so quick in choosing their top, their top topics that I ended up choosing on traditional healers. So, so that was my introduction. I was always interested in healing of different kinds. So, uh, But my father had been to have was posted in Nagaland in the 1960s before I was born. So I had always seen, uh, you know, um, things, cloths and baskets and spears and bamboo mugs and things in my house and had heard about Nagaland. Plus I had friends in college. In Veranda House, there were many students from Nagaland who were in the hostel. And also my brother, their, uh, their colleagues were from Nagaland in the civil services so it's not that you know it was something that i didn't know of and i had not met the people but actually going to the region was a new thing so that was the introduction and it just so happens that um after that i did an mphil but in a different area in central india then i got a scholarship to come to study in oxford to do my mphil and oxford the thing was that I had heard about uh, Pitreverse Museum. Dr. Alan McFarlan had just started a big project on Nadia, Naga Video Disc. I actually came to know about the project much after choosing Oxford rather than Cambridge. I had a choice between these two universities. The project was based at Cambridge. But a lot of things that were used in that project were from the Pitreverse Museum collections and archives in Oxford. Anyway, I joined Oxford. And there I did the secondary literature survey for my MPhil thesis, and that was on religion and healing. So I looked at the Naga monographs and other material that was available in the library. Now, one thing that is very interesting is that there is so much material, published material and archives available in UK. And so one would think that, why am I going all the way to UK to study about a region which is actually in India? But it's the secondary source material and also the primary source material which was easily available actually in uk than in india where i would have had to scour different libraries and go all over the place to find even the published material so that was one thing and then i sort of took a break i came back to india and i did several projects and i got uh, to do projects in nagaland i was the only one from that batch who continued to work in Naga land, uh, with the people, so the focus was at Angami Naga villages. So it was a multi sided study. So that is how I, my introduction was, and then I ended up doing uh, uh, doctoral uh, studies. And I've because I did several projects in between. I completed my doctoral studies only in two thousand one. So though I had been working with Naga land since nineteen eighty five was the first visit, and from nineteen nineties. I went to Nagaland to um, to do a project on a pictorial book with a very well-known photographer called Aditya Arya, who has actually now opened something called Museo Camera in Gurgaon. And that book should have come out in 94, but it was published 10 years later in 2004. So that was very interesting because that, that was the first time I managed to actually travel around uh, Nagaland and also meet different communities and people. But my interest in traditional healing practices and religion was such that I kept collecting information and meeting people. And I did various projects on for IGNCA, I joined IGNCA, I did a project there. Then I did a project on handicrafts for the Development Commissioner of Handicrafts. So, But every time I visited Nagaland, my interest in the healing and religion practices of the Angami was also taken care of. Yeah. So, so that's why in my book, I write that I've my fieldwork goes from 1985 till now. I could be working on any project, but I keep hearing about healers and healing yeah. and religion and church services.
2: Yeah. Uh, thank yeah. you. Thank you very much for the very elaborate um, explanation about your background. And also it also shows uh, where this book is coming from in that sense. Now, uh, you have mentioned about your engagement and involvement with the Yankami Nagas, but again, I want to emphasise this question as to coming to the healing and conversion, why specifically the Ankami Nagas? I'm sure now when we study the Naga community, obviously we cannot segregate only the Ankami Nagas. It's it's more of a holistic thing. But then in your mind, why the Ankami Nagas? Uh,
1: As I said earlier, that... um... In my MSC, we had done a village study of Jotsupa village, which is an Angami Naga village. Um, and part of the land of Jyotsuma village uh, has Kohima Science College. And we were the guests of Kohima Science College. So the introduction was already there. So our teachers had told us not to read Hutton's monograph on the Angami Nagas. to Go as a tabula rasa, go in the village and try and find out. So we did. So we found out all of us doing different topics. So, And after that, I read, when we came back, then we were allowed to read. So as to not to be influenced by the monograph. So that's a very interesting technique that our teachers used, the lecturers. And Professor Vinesh Ravasa is a very well-known um, anthropologist in India, and he was a very young anthropologist. And he was one of the teachers who had accompanied us to the village. So... So yes, so because my introduction was already done by the village study of Jyotsuma, so I continued. And so, I mean, that was also there. Plus also, you must understand Nagaland, as you as a Naga would understand that it's not very easy to enter Nagaland. So as an Indian, I need an inner line permit. Inner line permit is for 10 days. And then I have to have a guarantor in nagaland to stay further and i have to give my photograph go to district commissioner office get a stamp and then i'm allowed to stay for another three months so these are the fieldwork um, things that many people do not know so for all that i had to be in, i and now also i knew people in kohima they were uh, i had met them through my siblings plus they were People from students who had studied in college and they were also around in Koiba and Dimapur So sometimes it is also, and I'm talking about 1990s and um, then uh, later on in 2000s. So the kind of network that was there and having already done work on Jotsma and on Angami healing traditions. So the familiarity, and that's why I ended up working with the Angami
2: now i'm sure uh, some of the listeners will know about nagas but since um, this new book network is a worldwide network of um, publishing podcasts so uh, many people won't know about Nagaland and nagas and the colonialism and how christianity came all. also can you give give a brief uh, background to colonialism in this part of the this part of india and also the influence of christianity in, in the initial stage
1: Okay, now I'll say that how I actually came onto studying Christianity, I was working on traditional healers, but some traditional healers had converted to Christianity. Now that suddenly opened my mind. Okay, I'm here on traditional religion and healing, but the healers have converted to Christianity. So how did this come about? Now that itself, I mean, even the existence of Nagaland as a state itself is related to colonization and Indian independence and other things that were happening. So uh, uh, Naga, what is known as Naga land was part of the Naga Hills district and the uh, northeast um, hill frontier area. I mean, there were so, sort of different reorganizations of the region. So I, to make it simpler, I will say that it was part of the larger state uh, area region called Assam, which was the administrative unit. And within that, it was Naga Hills. And the British administration that came in, came in um, from what I read and understood, was also, it was uh, uh, extractive resources that were needed. There was oil, then the tea plantation had just begun in 1830s. And then they were trying to find a road also to connect to Burma. So all these, um, I mean, there were several other works have taken care of this, but the uh, So, in the 1830s, when the, and around that time, there was also a treaty of uh, Yandabo between the British and the Burmese. And so, there are all these kind of different um, regional historical events that were taking place in the northeast part of India. So the Naga who uh, were divided into different communities, as we learned from the British sources, okay, <laughs> and from the Ahom Buranjias, who call Nagas according to their village, the prominent village. So you have Bonpara Naga, this Naga, that Naga, but not as Ao, Angami, or Sumi. So there are different names that have been given and each, uh, the, 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 the Naga that, the so Naga itself is an outside term. For a collection of people, you know. So the, so with the as it is known in other parts of the world, with colonization comes missionization. So there were different missionary groups in Assam, and it just so happened that American Baptists who were in Burma mission they started also looking into uh, Assam. So they came over to Assam. And the first attempt was made in in, um, 1830s, mid-30s, by someone called Bronson to go and do evangelization. But the other idea was also to have Naga interested in tea cultivation. And there was support from the Britishers. And then with the tea cultivation... And because for tea cultivation, a lot of land that was part of the Naga hunting land and the trade routes, because they would come down to the plains to trade. So all that was taken up by the British. And this was actually not the, not the uh, you would think of East India Company, actually. That was the one that was involved. So all that, that is the historical thing. And to stop Nagas from coming into the forests that were cleared to Start the tea cultivation. So, Nagas was coming down because you've taken their land. So, there were skirmishes. And then the British punitive expeditions had started sending into Naga Hills to annex the region, to have, you know, pacify the Naga and saying that, okay, don't come and destroy or loot trains or this other things. So, that is how the history is. And then there were a lot of Naga. resistance to the British annexation. So you have 1879-4, then you have in Pankti. So there are different, um, there. I mean, all these historical records are there and people have written about the history of annexation. Several books available.
2: Thank you for a very precise uh, explanation on that one, actually. Now, uh, coming to, uh, as we have talked about the colonization and the coming of missionaries and all, one of the aspects that comes into, I mean, pops up very prominently is the aspect of conversion. Now, you have a chapter on the book, uh, edited book uh, by the title, called Rots, and you have Ah. a chapter on uh, conversion, and that is where you kind of uh, delve into the aspect of conversion. Now, your book also kind of, uh, talks about conversion, but then I think that books gives uh, gives more uh, concrete way of trying to understand conversion among the Nagas. Now, many people have also thought about this aspect and then have uh, written on this one, but then uh, we, I wanted to listen to your perspective on uh, the aspect of conversion among the Nagas.
1: Okay. Um, the chapter in the book called God Roads that was edited by... Um, uh, Peter Berger and Sarveshwar Sahu. It's almost like a condensation of my book. Mm. So, I mean, those who have read the book and the chapter will say, "Hmm, there are things." But yes, it is a condensation because when I was invited to uh, take part in the conference and then to write a chapter, I sort of look. Actually, when my book came out in 2012, because that the book also, I must say that. Um, after completing my thesis, I did several other projects. And then in from 2009 to 2011, I was at the Max Planck Institute of Religious um, and Ethnic Diversity. And there I got a chance to do my postdoctoral work and also to revise my doctoral thesis, combine it with my postdoctoral work and publish it. So that's why it took almost kind of um, from 2001, it took 2000. Uh, 2012 for the book to come out, and now again a second edition is coming out, which is being published by Dimapur-based publisher um, uh, Heritage Publishing House, and it should be coming out by the end of this year. So it's almost like ten plus ten plus ten. <laughs> but yes, so uh, there were um in in the chapter is a gist of my book where I have not gone into the details of ethnography, of conversion, but talking mostly about the peace. And it just so happens today, 2nd of October, and uh, we celebrate both Gandhi Jayanti and about shastri Shastriji and the peace, the non-violence, another thing. And that's what Christianity and how it is being used as um, in the part of the healing process. And my book was about how healing is the thread that joins the traditional religion aspect from individual community and now a pan nation healing of the naga people through reconciliation efforts that is being made by christian uh, community as such involving civil society christian church the churches so how you know so that is the thread that runs through And the conversion has many reasons. And that is what was, because my interest was, uh, why are these traditional healers converting? How come they have converted and still continue to do their traditional healing? Isn't there a clash between the belief systems? You know, because, I mean, um, uh, uh, Joel Robbins and others, especially this anthropology of Christianity, they talk about this Pauline rupture, and things. And I said, where is the rupture? Because even in my one month study, the initial study, I could see the overlapping, you know, where you have something separating, but then coming together, then separating their parts of it. Is it cultural? Is it religious? What it is? Is it to do with, I mean, identity in inverted commas? Because identity is a very large issue. So that is where, because That's where I feel that, you know, having been going to uh, Nagaland, especially the Angami area, from 1980s, in the mid-1980s, continuing till 2011 when I wrote the book, I came across so many different reasons. People will talk to me. And I think that is something with, with an anthropologist, that you are ready to listen to every point of view without countering any point of view. You have to leave your cultural baggage behind and, and listen and observation and listening is very important. And that is where I came to know that people have different reasons. And the reason is related to the youngsters coming away from their village, trying to belong to a community and then Christianity giving them the reason. Then they are finding something that actually then attracts them to the religion itself. The prayer, another thing. Then I came across uh, individuals who said that in 1956, when their villages were burnt by Indian army, they had to spend several months in the forests, and all the taboos that they were supposed to observe and the rituals they could not. They had to eat certain meat which was tabooed, and the and this was actually the, the Doctor Vissi Sanyu, who told me, and now he's written in his autobiography also. <laughs> so things like that look when we are breaking taboos then you feel that okay now how do i get out of this and then also is the thing that okay the christianity gives me to hold on to a religion gives a belief and so so there were different reasons people said you know then also the idea of the truth okay my religion is not the true religion what are the missionaries teaching what are they bringing so it is a very slow process and then as i i also write in the both in the chapter more in the chapter and in the book that how there have been uh you know people talk about backsliding and other things how do you say that i'm christian and this person is not christian how to differentiate that how the even the ban on rice beer drinking came in because that. Sh- that and and there were debates and this is what i found very interesting i i had a opportunity in 95 to go to washington dc and uh from there to valley forge where the uh, american baptist historical archives was society archives were and it was it was amazing to read the letters written by ew clark in paper thin onion sheets On both sides, it's so difficult. And he has a scrawly hand. So, I mean, (laughs) very difficult to read. Towards the later years, they had started saying typed letters to the home board. But seeing the handwritten letters and the letters to home board don't appear in the reports that one gets you know like that it um uh, there is one 1896 convention where a, a lot of people working on christianity referred to that baptist missionary report where a lot of baptist missionaries have written about the field areas and but in the letters comes out all the all the debates between the missionaries all the disagreements and I was amazed at looking at the things that we take it as normal, that uh, there is a, you know, everybody wanted, you know, ban on rice beer and it was done. No, there were debates. E.W. Clark was against it. Perrine and Haggard really wanted it. They had just come in and E.W. Clark saying that, what is these youngsters? They want to bring this, you know, uh, very strong kind of Christianity. Then some of the converts themselves started saying, no, we want to differentiate between those who are Christians, those who are not. And that debate still continues, you see. I mean, in different forms it comes up, but it has related to IMFL and other things also. And the, what you call the rum politics, as Charles Chasse uh, talked about it, you know, how the Indian army was flying people with rum, uh, cheap rum. So, you know, how... So there are, there are so many things. When you're talking about Christianity and conversion there are layers and layers. There's not a single reason that people convert. They can convert under dures to get something that Christianity is providing, or it is an internal belief, because there's a connection with the God. And that is why you also see the Protestant and Catholic difference in Dagaland. that Catholics came much later, because it was the Baptist, And even Reverend uh, Longri Al was very much against, pamphlets were distributed saying, you know, we have a direct connection with the God. And and Fizo also talked about Christianity being an indigenous Christianity. So sometimes we need to go back to what the leaders and other people were talking about Christianity as a form of Christianity for the Naga by the Naga now. Because it's not just Baptist missionaries who were evangelizing, it was the it was the, the Naga themselves who had studied in school. And they, some of them who were Christian were invited by villagers to open schools. And while educating them, they were also extra Bible classes. Missionaries was also teaching for the British, because British needed educated people. So it was also very symbiotic. Sometimes people think, oh, you know, missionaries and British, maybe they were not getting along. But so in my work, I found that it was also medical missionary work that helped education. And there were so many debates because the home board, Baptist home board, didn't have money to fund schools or to fund medical things so they had to convince them that we have to get education that is the only way nagas will accept us that is the only that is what made the au naga invite um uh, e w clark godhula and his wife mary clark and that was the way in so so there are a lot of things you know education medical work then there were medical missionaries who started coming and so I have sort of talked about conversion, but also missionary work and the and what strategies are used. And it is actually a mission strategy used by many different religions. In Christianity, nowadays, it is called tenting. So you do develop, development work, education and things so that the community accepts you. And then you can give the message,
0: the religious message. This episode is brought to you by Saks.com.
2: Yeah, I think you are correct in saying that, you know, conceptualizing conversion in terms of rapture, as, you know, Joe, Professor Joel Ropis has said, I think in the context of Nagaland uh, somehow it's kind of very different. And also at the same time, some of the anthropologists working on Christianity and conversion and all also have uh, kind of say that, you know, this word conversion, can the word conversion be used and all of those aspects. But I, I think I kind of believe that among the Nagas, at least the word conversion can still be used because at least they um, base their allegiance on uh, something uh, something else. So I think that aspect is uh, something which is very interesting among the Nagas, that there are multitude of ways of how conversion had happened. And I think that mm-hmm. aspect is something uh, that comes up very interestingly among the Nagas and as you have explored. So let me come to the next question. Now, as you have talked about conversion and as you talk about healing and then the traditional healers and Christianity, and as you talk about conversion of traditional healers, now... For me, I look at this phenomenon from the perspective, in my work at least, as of now, I look at it from the perspective of syncretism, now religious syncretism in that sense, to be very specific. But then, um, so how how do we understand this, Uh, the traditional healers becoming Christians and then also at the same time, you know, still uh, practicing their methods or their way of practicing medicine and healing in that sense. So how do we really encapsulate and understand this aspect?
0: Okay,
1: the traditional healers. Now I'll I'll tell you when in eighty five when I went into Jyotsuma. So when I said that I'm working on on healers, even the lab assistant used to deal with herbal medicine and other things. So he told me a lot of things from Goaima Science College. Then uh, other people who introduced me one to a Thembumiem, who told me his story and how he became and then i also met these healers called uh, kora bikilimie i don't know i hope i'm pronouncing it correctly but it is about about uh, those who have killed uh, a river otter with their teeth hmm. and have and doing that they uh, they get um, they are able to get the power to take out the these small bones that get stuck in the throat and for that one has to understand the food habits that that there are a lot of fish and other small birds and animals that are eaten and the way the bones are chewed it's very easy it might be quite frequent that you find a bone stuck in the throat so they get the power to get it down though you know you eat rice and things but they sort of they told me so I said okay so then you know and so uh, you have to do certain rituals and this and that they said no they didn't really have to do rituals as such they had to observe certain things and then they said oh then I said oh so you are not Christian are you Christian they said oh we are all Christian he's Catholic he's Protestant (laughs) but you know we became Christian but our gift didn't go but these are also seen as gifts that you cannot, and the traditional healers don't really charge any money. So all the money that is given to them is given uh, out of, uh, you know, as a thank you. They don't say that this is my fee, not like a doctor saying that, you know, it's like 200 rupee fee or 300 rupee fee. They don't charge. So whatever the person gives, it's fine. Except for one or two who have now opened shops or they had a certain method of divination. There's a different ways of divination. And then I also, uh, so the thing was about, you know, how does the, the syncretistic aspect. So there were some diviners who actually, there is also a uh, phenomena of people call tarhope, they're seen as a bridge between the living and the dead. So I used to hear legendary stories in Jyotsuma. The first time I went, I heard about a legendary story of a Tarhope who was able to, in her trance, also tell where uh, during encounter Uh, um, uh, Naga nationalist person had died and his comrades didn't know where he was and she was able to actually speak in in that person's voice saying this is where I am and this is what happened and this was told to me in Jotsama and Jotsama you know it's very um, there are uh, visual reminders of a uh, naga national struggle in jotsupa you have a tehuba on which there's a large stone where it is carved in in angami in tenyadi that the village was burnt in 1956 by indian army there are these graves where it is written that you know these people were martyred in such and such date due to encounters there's a whole stone where there's a list of martyrs then you also have um, a particular place where there is um thing written that in 1929 these these people were the signatories to the Simon commission letter so it is a place where you know memory is kept alive that way so i also came to know about healers who had also worked uh, were part of the movement and had some of them had learned certain traditional methods through other healers but to to come back to the divinational healers who had converted to Christianity, they told me that their helping spirits had also converted. And this one person in Jotsuma, whom I I met again and again, because I used to go back to Nagaland, and then I wanted to meet him again to get some more answers. And uh, he told me that all of his family is Christian now, belonging to a different denomination except him, because his spirits won't allow him to convert. And they would give him a lot of pain. And becoming a thamumiyah, the divinational healer, is not easy. Not everyone wants to be because you have to be available to help people. And you might have to go through certain physical uh, hardships, illness, and other things. So it's not very easy. It's not that everybody wants to be a diviner. The diviner is chosen by the spirits. So these are the things, I've written a separate article, but most of the article is there in my book. (laughs) So, But when I came to know that, okay, the spirits themselves also convert. So it's very interesting. That is where I met some of the healers who were describing their spirits as white doves. And I'm thinking, you know, that, okay, you know, even the description of the spirits. But there was one thing when I was looking for traditional religion, among angami it was through the diviners i learned about the traditional religion because they told me about different kind of spirits and then then when you get to know into that then you also hear the whole pantheon okay fine hutton has written but when people tell me who may not have read, read Hutton, that what are the different beliefs what happens what they have experienced So that was fascinating. And most of these people were Christian who were telling me about their experiences and they were not taking me for a ride. (laughs) Because that is also people can say, because in anthropology, sometimes people say, oh, Margaret Mead was, you know, told this, this, this. But, you know, they were, uh, they were, maybe they were just taking her for a ride about certain things. So, but no, these were being told in a very serious manner about experiences people had felt. And then, I noticed that the other healers who were there, those charismatic healers from the Christian Charismatic Revival Church, they had very similar stories of how they became a healer. The stories which were so similar to the stories I had heard from the diviners about their journey. You know what... <laughs> how the spirits come. And so, so that is how one sees, but you know, there is a very uh, important book by Jenkins about Christianity, religion in the everyday life, English everyday life. There's so many things that continue. So that is where the cultural and religious beliefs that continue when you talk about syncretism, like among the Angami when a baby is born. You're supposed to take your spit and say, this is mine before the bad spirits can take over him so that belief continues you may be a christian but you do that and there is a change of name of people sometimes people say that a name might be too strong for a child if he's falling ill very often and then you change the name then i came across cases where people said if somebody was falling ill a lot the parents would say that i will give this child up to the give it to the church if the child becomes okay and then you realize that some people have taken the line to be in the church um, as a pastor or a priest or something because the parents have actually given them to the church so see you do you see and i mean how, so you have sympathicism in this way you know there's a there's a mixture and there's a diff but then you also have people who say i'm mean, especially there are some out writers who have written about you know uh, prophecy and uh, people who go into trance especially during the church services and they say oh they are they are just like you know the old uh, diviners and these trans and people so maybe they're not christian so there are there is still that kind of doubt in people that who is a christian who's not and then the things about okay which which kind of Christianity thinks about uh, evil spirits and which does not. And here I will talk to you about uh, a little bit about translation. One thing that the missionaries did was give a written script to all the languages. It chose the Roman script. But when you start translating the gospel, how do you translate biblical terms? I mean, I have a very small section because I'm not an expert in Bible studies. And, but during my conversation, Angami, people uh, used to tell me, you know, that there's a concept of sin, but the concept of sin among Angami is very different. And then also the terms, then they say, saying, Tarhoma has been made into an evil spirit, but our supreme creatrix, is a Tarhoma with both male and female, both male and female aspect. So, and then you see that in the Bible, the is God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so you and but but you know how difficult it must have been to translate the gospel using indigenous terminology, which is meant for a totally different kind of belief systems and ideas. These are ideas, isn't it? In the end, ideas about divinity and what it is. So, how to use indigenous term and a lot of uh, indigenous. Um, uh, scholars helped in translation. And this is again something that I think uh, what I found in the letters. I was taken aback about the debates about spellings. That how Sapli was complaining that um, Tanquist, who was part of the these Angami uh, uh, missionaries to the Angami area in Kohima that there was a committee that was formed for standardization of spellings by Charles Posse, the district commissioner, that, okay, all the spellings that are used could be standardized because um, Naga speak, most of the Naga languages are tibeto burman languages, which are tonal languages. None of these Bibles and all have tones written. So you will... Understand the meaning of the word in the whole sentence, and actually, this was one thing that stopped me from learning the language because I made so many mistakes, and elders used to just laugh at me, because the meaning of the word changes so drastically that you can end up offending somebody, you know, if you don't pronounce it correctly. So, uh, so I said, okay, I'll stick to Nagabis and I'll take my friends and let them interpret for me. There's a dialectical variation in villages. I'm doing a multi-sided fieldwork. I'm going from village to village and dialect is changing pronunciation is changing so in that you need a standardization of how to spell if you're spelling the same word differently you do not know which word is being used so that is i mean of course there is a commonsensical aspect of seeing the word in the context of other words that are used but even translation of uh, gospel was not easy which word to use which word and that's why a lot of bibles have been re-translated our bible also the new one came out a few years ago angami bible also a few years ago they had the whole thing
2: yeah i think um, the way you are explaining also makes me very excited because my work deals on all of this aspect actually Though I don't, I mean, some aspect I don't really go deep into, but I really go uh, deep into exploring the aspect. And when I talk about syncretism, obviously the idea of syncretism is also not accepted by all anthropologists, but then it gives me the privilege to really, you know, expand this theoretical horizon of syncretism. And in, in my field work, through my field that I try to expand this. And coming to the aspect of spirit, when you mentioned about the even the conversion of spirit, I think that's something which is very true actually because i use this word called marginalization of the spirit so there are certain spirits which were called as evil spirit because they wanted to associate those spirits to the traditional uh, practices right traditional religious practices but then there were certain spirits that were actually in that sense incorporated into the christian worldview in that sense um, Mm -hmm. incorporated the christian worldview and then it, it is still used today so that aspect is uh, something which is very interesting that I found among the also that certain form of marginalization happened, but also certain form of incorporation that has happened in the understanding of the spirit. In sense. So obviously, um, the theologians, since I've read many works by the Naka theologians, specifically the our theologians themselves, I meant to talk about mm-hmm. sin, salvation, all of those. Things. Obviously, similar concepts are not found among the uh, among the house but then among the house concepts are very different, though, which is not actually explored in that sense. Because what most of the theologians what they end up doing is that you know, oh, the traditional concept like this one, which is sufficed by Christian by Christianity and all of those aspects, which I actually don't really see that aspect of it because I think I see it as a form of demeaning the traditional beliefs and practices in that sense. So I think that aspect also comes into really uh, interestingly. So coming to Kind of trying to wrap up the uh, discussion and aspect and all. So, h- how do we understand in today's context among the Nagas? And since you talk about the, uh, uh, you your work has been for a very long time. And how do we understand the aspect of spirit in today's context and healing? I mean, in your work, right? Because I think as uh, we both of us also agree that you know there's. Mm-hmm the indigenization of christianity has happened so that is why when i talk about christianity and when you talk also talk about christianity we say it's like naga christianity or our christianity so in that sense uh, so how how do we um, or what is the picture of this christianity uh, among the nagas uh, as of today in today's context uh, when we look at the aspect of healing and you know speed and all of those aspects
1: ah <laughs> that should come more from you as an insider <laughs> So, but yet, I mean, as I'm looking from outside in, okay, so because I'm not a Christian, I'm what you call a practical Hindu. So I do my Diwali and Rakhi and others, but I'm I'm kind of what is now in unquote, quote, liberal. Sometimes my students actually ask me when I was teaching anthropology of religion, Madam, which religion do you belong to? So as anthropologists don't seem to belong to any religion you know also because you have such a such an approach to understanding religion that it is it becomes a little you know it's a question mark no I, I i think it i see two kinds of christianities one is a very kind of a personal belief system that people have a personal relationship with the god because when you go into the church And when you see people praying, they are personal prayers, you know. So I've been to different different churches and seen, you know, how, you know, after the person who has given the sermon, then people pray themselves. And some, and there is, and I've also, when I stay with my uh, Naga friends, we have, you know, uh, uh, there is, uh, one thanks the God before eating your food whether it is every time every time you take you know your your when you eat your food you say that thank you for you know giving me the meal so i would also close my eyes and my friends would say why are you closing your eyes you're not christian i said look it's the it's the atmosphere you know if all of you are closing your eyes and praying then I will also thank God. I mean, for me, all gods meet in one place. So, so the, the thing is, so I see that there is an everyday way of doing. Then, then you have people coming together in in the study group. Then there are sometimes. I mean, this is the observation I've seen while doing my field work that how Christianity has become part of the living. So, more people, I think. Now there are there are there are prayer houses, there are churches, there are large church events, there are churches in different languages. I mean, there is something called a religious landscape. So first there are different denominations. and then if you go into Kohima and Dimapur, you have different Naga communities. So you have different uh, language churches, then there are different colonies. In Kohima, it's so mountainous that you can't go from one end of the Kohima to the other end. So you will have your kind of local church. So there are, So there is kind of that way the church has developed. And you have youth groups, you have church groups. So it has become a part of living everybody belongs to a church because all nagas christians give tithes so you your name is listed in a particular church where your 10% of your income goes so so it is a part of a person and then syncretism has different meanings you know in theology it has a different meaning in anthropology, it has a different meaning, that it's this kind of a you know cultural overlap with belief systems and what are coming in, what are coming up. With a theologian, I wouldn't really go into a debate about syncreticism because you are understanding it differently. And you're looking at what because then you say, Okay, what are the cultural aspects that have come in? What were the what were the original um uh, meaning of certain Cultural things which were initially not allowed even the dressing was not allowed because everything was part of a belief system and all the rituals were related to that belief system so even the status gained by feasting your clan people or by gaining status uh, as a warrior was related to a certain belief system so you kind of say though you cannot wear this, you can wear, can't wear that because it relates to the certain belief, which is not congruent with the belief in, 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 in Christ. So, but all those things have come back. I mean, we read about, you know, how the British officers like Mills and all would take away the scholarship of, you know, government scholarship of people who were studying in uh, the schools run by Christian, taught by Christian missionaries. So they had to change, I mean... Uh, Reverend uh, uh, Benwati told me that how, you know, he was uh, getting a scholarship, but as soon as the inspectors would come, the government inspectors, they had to change into their traditional wear so that they wouldn't see them in their shorts and shirts. (laughs) The shorts and shirts were not just Christian for them. It was also modernism. You see, you have to understand also, say, 1870s, might have been different. Eighteen eighties might have been different. But when it came to 1900s, there's a whole kind of modernization, what we call. That is also part of it. Why is it that we want to wear jeans and jacket of a certain kind? I mean, you can wear whatever. But this is also an identity, a modern educated identity. So all kinds of things overlap. So... So you can, I mean, you can be like there were, there were a lot of Christian in, uh, in the British administration, but they might be wearing their kilt and other things because they were told that, okay, you have to wear your cultural, your cultural tradition should not go, you may become Christian. So all kind of things. So I actually, I wish that somebody brings all these letters to the home board because they have such interesting debates, even about clothing, clothing. E.W. Clark didn't want to ban the traditional clothing because he said, oh, these people, they go back to the village and they are laughed at by the others. Whereas some missionaries said, no, they have to wear dhoti and other things or different clothing because they have to stand out as Christian because all the other clothing is related to the." belief system but now you see now that clothing has become in some ways secular so if people are wearing it during traditional festivals or during you know uh, whatever gatherings whether it is a students union in Delhi or anywhere else or it is Hornbill Festival there is I mean though there are still debates about it what happens but the clothing has become a cultural identity
2: Our conversation is extending a little bit because this conversation doesn't really happen much in the, you know, international circle or general circle of of talking about Nagas and the work and all, but then uh, I wanted to really go deep and explore on this aspect. Thank you very much for that, ma'am. I think that that is something which is very concrete and very very interesting, and I, I think my work will also uh, add into uh, so much of what you are also saying. Mm-hmm. So it will be really interesting to see all of those aspects. Now, ma'am, I know you are uh, working with now, you're working in some projects with the museums and also now Dr. Arkadong and Tori Kikon are talking about uh, repartition and all of those aspects. And also, uh, can you tell us something about uh, the projects that you're working uh, on and also the very movement of repartition that is going around?
1: Okay. I'll- I was just thinking that we were talking about healing, and now suddenly uh, the healing has become a focus on the talks of repatriation of human remains. I have been seeing all all those uh, human remains. Even Arko Tong, he has taught in Oxford for six months in the uh, in the 2010s. I think 2009 or something. He was here, so they've been there. They were there in the museum. Pitreverse Museum. Pitreverse Museum has the largest collection of Naga objects because J.P. Mills and J.H. Hutton, uh, they have donated a lot of material and some other uh, people also have donated. Uh, But Balfour, who was the first director of Pitreverse Museum, he had visited uh, Bokokchung and and, um, also the Angami area in 1920s. So, and then he commissioned um, Hutton and Mills to actually collect specifically for the museum and gave instructions. And you must understand that J.P. Mills and J.H. Hutton, uh, I will call them amateur anthropologists when they were administrators, they were following a certain uh, notes and queries. This was prepared by the Royal Anthropological Institute for administrators to actually do how to study the communities they are administrating. So they follow a certain pattern, especially religion and politics. Then there were also uh, more emphasis on the cultural aspects. So you will see they follow a certain pattern And that is where I had found the gap that there was not much about traditional healers in J.H. Huttons. (laughs) And uh, though there were things about healing and diseases and sickness and other things. So, um, so, yeah. So the collections that came, some are very, very well explained. Those who were specifically collected and given the instructions. And some are not. So you do not know. Now, um, so I've been... I had been working with the textiles, the historical clothing. And uh, I did a project in um, in 2005, 2006, where I brought back uh, photographs of the historical uh, textiles to the Lotha and Angami community. Lotha community got very interested. They actually contacted me. I, they asked me to leave the, uh, the digital and the hard copies with them. And because the Lotha Naga book had been banned in Naga land by the Lotha Hoho, it had some information which they didn't agree with. So nobody had seen those textiles. There were descriptions of those textiles and black and white photographs. So when I brought back, they were like, oh, but then, you know, there are village-specific textiles, clan-specific textiles also and eight specific textiles and many things uh, and one must understand the history of naga villages there were british punitive expeditions that were burning the villages and later during the naga national movement there were uh, indian army that was burning the villages and then when the christian revivals were taking place a lot of material cultural heritage was destroyed in the revival, I have met people who have told me that they their parents had burnt the traditional cloths, they had sold away the traditional jewellery, or thrown it away. So you, and then then later on, there were collectors who collected, and there were also Naga collectors who collected a lot of traditional things from the remote area, especially um, the eastern Nagaland side, and they were sold to international collectors. So there are a lot of private collectors who have huge amount of Naga material. Some of them sell it to the museums also. So during these punitive expeditions, also Hutton and Mills and some other people, Fiorheim and Dorf, they collected the what were called the war trophies, which were there in villages like Panksha and some other villages. So, so there were a lot of these. The human remains are part of what was seen as the trophies brought back by the warriors, okay? And they were either displayed in the Murungs, you know, you have your um, Arju, Ban, mm-hmm. Kichuki, <laughs> whatever you want, the different ways you call them, mm-hmm. okay, and or the chief's house, like among the cognacs. Sorry, that's my... And... um So when they punished the villages, they collected, they brought head trophies back and deposited in museums. So in Vienna Museum, there are head trophies that were collected by Hammondhoff. In Pitreverse Museum, there are head trophies and and bones and scalps and other things that were collected by J.P. Bills, J.H. Hutton. A lot of them were displayed in a display case called uh, Treatment of the Dead Enemy. So, I mean, I have seen them and several Nagas have seen them, but I think it's only 19 uh, in last year, in uh, it was the 2020s, wasn't it? When they were taken away, t- taken out by Pitrovers Museum, the new director of Pitrovers Museum. And because uh, uh, now the museums have also changed their stance, they don't want to keep human remains. It has been there for a while. A lot of museums don't display human remains. So when I did an exhibition in Basel in 2008, which was called um, Naga uh, Forgotten Mountain Region Rediscovered because of the collections, you see, when the the Naga National Movement began, Indian government stopped all foreigners from entering the region. So while that region had so many German collectors and uh, English collectors, even Americans going through it and collecting, in especially in the late uh, 19th century and in 20th century so we have collections in berlin which are from from the first christian village in Mokukchung area so they had gone there then in 1890s the collections were made 1880s 1890s So it's very interesting history of christianity people and so who are the people who were giving away these things had they become christian that's why they were giving away, or there was some kind of a trade. You know, you have to also think that there could be punitive expedition under duress, but also some people might be giving away because they don't have any use for the material, or they are selling it, or they are actually manufacturing things to be sold, like you have in Hornbill Festival where you can buy traditional things because they are being manufactured to be sold as souvenir. So. So this is the thing about, so when we look at human remains, I mean, I had given a talk to Naga scholars um, in 2020 about it, you know, the collection history that where there are photographs of Panksha village being burned, there are photographs of, the, of that particular head trophy in situ in the village, and then it is in the accession register, then it's in display in the museum. But what is the history? The Pangsha village, even though things had been, you know, uh, talked with each other, and it would have ended there. But to show all the other villages that okay, if you do anything against which we do not like, then we are going to punish it. And the whole village was burnt. Then village burning mean you're burning all the grain and everything. So it's a. It's a it's a very terrible part of history. And this is what I think when when you think about the head trophies, but it's not just head trophies. There are also secondary burial skulls from the Cognac region, which would have been taken from the burial sites. Because these are, I mean, some skulls and all are very identified as rich village. But a lot of other things you cannot really identify so i don't know how they're going to work it out but i think fnr is helping them going to the villages and uh, but my interest was about you know how the healing of the land has become and i was thinking hmm, that healing is has become there are different kinds of healing and it is the history. So you cannot take away the political and social and religious history of the region. Because even having collections there, what is the history behind it? And why till now nobody bothered about it? Why now? That is a question as a as a researcher, as a scholar, that that these are the questions that come up that that Is it the time? How come so many people have seen those trophies but nobody thought of bringing them back? So it is like two sides. The museums are ready and they are reaching out. And are the people also ready to bring that? Okay, certain things have been taken, what things we want back and what we don't want. So as I was telling you, I've brought, you know, A lot of communities have seen the historical clothing. Actually, in in 2021, last year, there was a whole project in Pitt museum where they were photographing certain textiles. And there were uh, four different communities. There were some individual members and some community members from Nagaland who have seen the historical textiles in real time over Zoom from the collections. So we arranged that. I mean, imagine, you know, in uh, in areas where getting to take the cameras into the research rooms, spread out textiles, zoom into them, and actually show it to the weavers and women's community members and elders who had gathered. It was not a very big group because it's not very easy to organize people to come together to see. But um, museum and those who were interested... And now I think Nagaland government has given a directive that all the traditional attire should be um, uh, 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 described document documentation of traditional attire. But a lot of women communities have already started doing that. And that's when I had shown it to the Lotha women community who brought out a book. Then the Sumi Naga um, two ladies came. To look at the historical textiles in Petrebus Museum in 2012, they brought out a book of their attires. Then we also are liaising with the with the Avnaga Women's Committee who wanted to include the historical textiles. I had met them in 2019. And I asked them whether they knew about the historical textiles, and they said they did not know that they were actual textiles because one researcher from uh, Zurich had done a whole thesis on our Naga textiles, but they had not understood. They did not know that there were actually historical Naga textiles dating from eighteen seventies, eighteen nineties, and nineteen hundred so many of them and photographs in the museums so I showed them and uh, uh, high quality photographs have been sent by the museum to them with all the details because there are village details details of the weavers and so I mean there are all these things happening with the Zeme also with some other groups also so these things are happening and I've Been liaising. I think it's time because Naga, um, those people who have hosted me and they have shown such generosity. (laughs) I think if I can even do a little bit of just connecting (laughs) and getting, that would be so. I I hope that, you know, with this new project uh, that Dolly and uh, uh, Arco are doing, that maybe it will bring a group of Naga elders here actually see not just the human remains but other things because almost every display case in pitt river's museum has something from the naga communities and yes. a lot of it is in storage okay not everything can be displayed so there's lots
2: thank you very much ma'am for the elaborate explanation on your current research work on project that you are doing now you're i mean there, there can be so many conversations that can be generated through your book but also at the same time your current project also sounds very fascinating. So I think next time we'll catch up and then talk about your current project and hopefully we'll be able to do that. Now, I'm sure many people like to get in touch with you and ask about your research work and also at the same time collaborate with you. So how do people reach out to you?
1: Oh, they can uh, write to me on my email. V I B H A dot J O S H I at A N T H R O dot O X dot, dot UK. I'm a research affiliate at the uh, School for uh, School for Anthropology and Museum Ethnography uh, at Oxford. I also I'm also a guest fellow at Tubingen University. I teach anthropology MSc students there. So that's the best way to reach me by email
2: yeah thank you very much ma'am for being here yeah yeah
1: yeah thank you so much we talked about a lot of things and i am looking forward to reading more of more of your articles i do go through them yeah Yeah. it's very interesting
2: yeah thank you very much ma'am do take care and hopefully we'll soon catch up regarding your work thank you